We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse. Greetings and welcome back to another exciting installment of the Fifth Column Podcast. This is your weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle of people that make it and occasionally ourselves. I'm Camille Foster. Happy Kwanzaa. I am delighted to be joining you. I am joined, of course, by Matt Welch, Michael Moynihan. Uh, gentlemen, happy Kwanzaa to you. I, I think today is the day of the first feast of forgiveness. And I want to forgive you <laughs> both for your internal, your is white supremacy that you can't up. help. I actually don't know anything about Kwanzaa. Is it is it forgiving the uh, uh, creator of Kwanzaa for locking a woman in his basement? <laughs> mm, there, uh, well, no, there's no crime in that. Those yeah. women were his property. That's yes. how it works. Yeah, <laughs> obviously. Ron, it's the reason we celebrate. Kwanzaa. Ron Karenga is the Rick James of holidays. <laughs> yes. Uh, put my put my feet all over your couch. Nigga. Yeah. All over. Yeah, everybody, you should go look up Ron Karenga, the the creator of Kwanzaa, and I believe he was uh, the, he had the uh, uh, organization that was a competitor to the Black Panthers called U.S. Slave, I think it was called. <laughs> I, seriously, I think it was called Slave or U.S. Slave or something. Those, uh, but com- uh, but yeah, so this is the race spectacular. These competitors to Black Panthers was just a very rich vein of fucking violence i mean the amount of sectarian yeah yeah that was <laughs> black nationalist on black nationalist violence in the 60s yeah and 70s. um Great. because by the way i want to start this way because by the way we are this is and i want to sound um like one of those car dealerships like our december race mm-hmm. spectacular um because we're going to talk about that George Floyd documentary that um, I think we all finally watched. We've gotten a bunch of emails about it asking mm-hmm. us if we've watched it and our reaction. But I want to I start the race spectacular this way. A um, couple nights ago, I went to the New York Philharmonic to see Handel's Messiah, as um, one does around Christmas time. And right here, you have this. Mm-hmm. As you can see, we don't do video, but this is the playbill that one gets for the New York Philharmonic. And in the low, the slower moments of Handel's Messiah, um, you end up looking through the playbill and like reading the ads because you're like, all right, this is this is not the hallelujah bit. This is the sort of boring bit. Um, there are a few of those slow bits, um, but there is an article, very small one. It's about that big, you can see, and it is called a couple paragraphs. It is called problematic contexts. Oh, no. <laughs> yes, for Handel's Messiah. Yes. Um, now, this one is really something else. Um, and I was just like wide-eyed sitting, overlooking the orchestra. Very, very good. I mean, it was v- am- amazing. Everyone's playing. But um, very heavily Asian. <laughs> just so you know, it's like, it's incredible. I was like, is this cultural appropriation? There's a bunch of Asian violinists uh, doing Handel's Messiah, who's a German-British person. I'm like, no, it's awesome. This is what's great about America. So watching this, problematic context. And it wasn't because there was a lot of Asian people uh, culturally appropriating music. That's just not theirs. And again, I'm being sarcastic. I don't believe that sort of thing. But this is what I read. Um, Skip the first paragraph and get to musicologist Dr. David Hunter reported that starting in the 1710s, Georg Friedrich Handel invested in the South Sea Company and the Royal Africa Company both of which were involved in the transatlantic slave trade. By the way, if you know the South Sea Company, you know the great, it was one of the first big bubbles, like financial crises, where there was a big stock. Uh, I don't remember the details of it, but there was like everyone lost a lot of money in it. Um, 
in fact, Handel used the returns from these investments to cover losses from his own opera productions. Unfortunately, this wasn't noteworthy at the time. 32% of the investors and subscribers in the Royal Academy of Music during the 1720s had also invested in the Royal African Company. But this is my favorite bit. In fact, Ellen Harris, another Handel scholar, infers that the composer may not have actively purchased these investments, but rather received them as payment in light of how quickly he cashed them out. Either way, he did profit from the slave trade. So you're trying to watch Handel's Messiah, and they give you literature that's like, he didn't own slaves, he didn't say anything racist, but he had some stock in a company that did trade slaves. And you know what? He probably didn't even buy them. He probably was just given them because then he just cashed them out and took the money because he was getting paid for his operas. I mean, <laughs> this is a new level of flagging in, in a sort of presentism way, flagging someone's 1710s moral failings for owning <laughs> stock. And, 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 and I like that they also point out like, this wasn't rare at the time. It's like, okay. <laughs> well, thank you for that point. I'm going to go back to remember enjoying the show. So I just thought that was a musicology, fun. which is one of the most joyless uh, professions uh, in mm -hmm. the world, uh, in my experience, of yeah. people who are just trying to get as quickly as possible to I know more about this than you do, um, and and yeah. uh, <laughs> and you're enjoying it wrong. And, you know, this genre needs to be protected from leaking into the other genre because then we wouldn't be able to classify it as perfectly as we like to as musicologists. Um, so I might be biased going yeah. in, but um, I didn't realize that musicology was about forensic fact checking of in passive investment portfolios 300 years ago. <laughs> that doesn't seem yeah. to me like core yeah. to the project of musicology. Um, and that's... Um, no, but do you think they're complaining that back in 1710, uh, there was not uh, ethical funds? <laughs> <laughs> they were like, this stock portfolio does not invest in tobacco slavery. It's like, I, I mean, I'm just trying to get a return, guys, because everyone's cool with slavery. I mean, I, I would be weird if I wasn't, because I'd be like the outlier if I wasn't. But yeah, that's that. I assume that in um, next production if it were like, you know, African music or Asian music, there would be the throat clearing about the the whites at the Philharmonic putting it on. And it's funny, we walked out of uh, Lincoln Center and we're walking down Broadway um, and I look up and there's a building and it's sort of like three floors up. I was like, I think I've been to that restaurant. And I realized I had been to that restaurant and it was after a, a film that I did for HBO opened. And there was the dinner right after. And I said, oh, yeah, that was the place where I spent literally 45 minutes at the bar, like going back and forth with Fab Five Freddy about how hip hop, hip -hop music, um, hip hop music is culturally appropriating German music. And he totally agreed with me. He was like, yeah, and it was all, it was all like Kraftwerk records. We were like buying Trans Europe Express and like, you know, Planet Rock is literally just Kraftwerk with Africa Bambata rapping over it. And I was like man, you guys got to give that music back to the Germans. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, to he was totally down with it. He's like, yeah, it's all dumb. So 
But but it's obviously for for anyone who isn't clued in, one hand is making a, a broader point that all such uh, tracing of responsibility or a supposed originality to particular races and cultures is kind of stupid. And you find a point at which it starts to break down. Yeah. And there's there's something similar that could be said about all of the really selective outrage about historical. Um, inadequacies. Like you didn't do enough for trans rights in 1762. Well, probably I, not. I, I bet Eric Handel like was not cool with trans people. I bet Handel was like, I don't know. I'm just it's kind of weird to me. I, I, I have other news for you about the various other things that people that people in the past managed to get wrong in severe and profound ways, and our present day upset and outrage at the at the moral failings of people who lived decades, centuries before we did. Um, is just completely stupid. Um, isn't hip hop though? I mean, isn't hip hop the the like negation of the absurd argument of kind of cultural siloing or cultural appropriation? Because like you listen to De La Soul's record um, Three Feet High and Rising, or De La Soul is Dead, the second, the, the first and second albums, which are hugely influential hip hop albums, and you know, there's like full songs that are just yeah. Steely Dan samples, like I know. Mm -hmm. And it's like, is is Peg from Steely Dan and him just rapping over it. And it's like, that is the blending of like weird jazz infused rock 70s culture with hip hop. And you listen to guys like Pasta Noose and like the rappers and like, oh yeah, this is what my parents listened to. I we were super into these records and we just started rapping over them. And it's like, that is the best smashing up of cultures that one could possibly hear. And it's like, in the arguments about cultural appropriation, all of those people, I imagine, would profess their love of the of the the, the culture and hip hop, and it's like, no, no, hip hop was absolutely the smashing up of 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 different genres and cultures, and it's the opposite of cultural siloing. It's the when I went through the music of nineteen eighty nine month by month, uh, pretty meticulously, um, a lot of great like uh, you know pretty early stage rap stuff and it, that that kind of uh de la soul rap is beginning to flower oh, in, in new york sort of bohemian yeah. um stuff and also like you know a very uh a black nationalist krs1 but if you go and just listen to x -Clan? incredible incredible stuff <laughs> Do you remember uh, x if you go and uh and listen to uh what's being sampled the most um uh there are two sources above all that you hear the most. James Brown, obviously everyone was, you know, taking his break beats, yeah, incredible drummer. Um, yeah. stuff. And the other one yeah. was Eddie Van Halen. <laughs> like, you know, oh, the, yeah. all of two life crew is just, a, a, you know, let's, let's say filthy things over Van Halen riffs, uh, tone low, filthy things or party <laughs> things over Van Halen riffs, Van Halen, who obviously is Dutch. <laughs> um, it, yeah, yeah. Literally like Dutch. literally Dutch. Like they're both, speaking they Dutch, grew up yeah. speaking Dutch. Yeah. But by the way, I mentioned this the other day because I was listening to Thriller, and I said this to, to somebody the other day. We were, we were listening to Thriller, and um, I said, look, the, um, Beat It, uh, which Eddie Van Halen didn't make any money yeah. off of, by the way, because he's not credited on the record, because I think he, they were with Warner Brothers, and that was maybe a Sony record or something, but they wouldn't lend him to Michael Jackson, so he did it anyway. And it's the only song that I can really think of where everybody knows the guitar solo note by note and can like hum every bit of it because it's so in integral to that song. And like, it's, that's a great smashing up of two different things, which he again tries to do later 
um, with Steve Stevens and yeah. Dirty Diana, which doesn't really work. <laughs> so many ways Dirty but, Diana I mean, doesn't the, work. The, that's... <laughs> it just, it, yeah, there's a thousand ways it doesn't Physically. work. Um, and I, yeah, I mean, he was like, I don't who, I don't understand these girls. Can you <laughs> explain it. with me so I can write a song Stop about it? it? Um, <laughs> Stop it. It's like, just think of like little boys, but pretend that, that the little boys called I, Diana. He's like, I don't okay, like that. I don't like that. Do a solo, Stevie. I, I love it. I like it. Dirty Diana. Eddie. And I, I think you're, I think you're wrong about this. I do think that the broader point is very interesting. And I, I remember seeing something the other day, and, and I don't know if I sent it to you guys or not, but it was Method Man. Man talking about uh, writing uh, the song Method Man. And yeah. in the clip, he's describing how he drew inspiration like from Bootsy Collins, Holland Oates, mm-hmm. and like Bon Jovi. <laughs> like, oh, man. Is that right? Like, right. He's, he's I mean, great. It's, there is so much borrowing that happens. Uh, and I think the the phrase that I'd coined at some point in the past was that all culture is appropriation. And that is certainly true mm-hmm. of all cultural expression as well. It is simply impossible to isolate any one thing and say that it belongs to an entire collection of people um, beyond like all of humanity. And to the extent you like something and listen to it and internalize it in some way and use it to create something new, you too are appropriating. So congratulations. I suppose that's just how it works. This is, this is boring. Um, <clears throat> so, mm-hmm. but I do want to talk about that. There are some other related things happening in the news, but. Oh, I think you're going to play the clip. Oh, I can. Oh, yeah, I, I can. Have it, you have it on the screen. I just want to hear it because you have it on the screen. So. My mind works crazy. I don't know where I heard these records before, but it was etched in my head. Hey, right. you get off my cloud. You don't know me. You don't know my stuff. <laughs> hey, you get off my cloud. Who is that? <laughs> Hey, you get off of my cloud. <laughs> right. Now, no now, one has any idea. Now, now, I think yeah. that's Boosie, Boosie Collins, yeah, but Boosie. it was stuck in my head, okay. right? Yeah, okay. So, <laughs> so when I got, by the time I got to the M-E-T-H-O-D, man, mm-hmm. that was already etched in my head from, mm-hmm. you know, M-E-T-H-O-D-O-F-L-O-V-E, yeah. Big Hall and Ocean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Big Hall and The man... Came from Master Ace. One of my favorite records was Music Man. The mm. Music Man. Mm. So it's M E T H O D Man. So you put like three songs together and made your own shit. Wait, that's 15 years old? You did that at 15 years old? Yeah, yeah. And um, no, no, I was like 16, 17. That means it's That's from Shrink Champs, which some of you may watch, others of you have never heard of. But if you can find it, go back and look for that it's, Kanye it's West good, yeah. Drink Champs episode. Oh, which yeah. Uh, yeah. came right after the whole Tucker Carlson uh, meltdown. Uh, you won't find it on Drink Champ's feed because they removed it. Um, Is that where he's wearing Because a, they were applauding uh, him all right. throughout. Is he wearing a burqa in that one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he wasn't wearing a yeah. burqa in that one. He saved that for Alex Jones. That's right. That, it, was a, it was a bit of a, a journey that he was on in that he's week been, and a half. He's been, he's been on a journey. Uh, he does have a, yeah. does have a new, new <laughs> song out on, on iTunes. Um, and uh, he performed with his yeah. daughter, uh, and Ty Dolla Sign and some other artists who are featured on the new album with Ty Dolla Sign. Not sure when that album will drop, but I'm I'm happy to see him making music, even if it's it's you know little little daunting. And, little daunting. <laughs> uh, by the way, I just I also want to point out uh, when you have Method Man on there that uh, my favorite. Uh, Wu Tang song uh, "Gravel Pit." Mm-hmm. The uh, sample on it is from a uh, French composer, uh, and it's from like a French TV show. And it's like that—that that sample is so such great. A good song, and it's like that's that's such a great song. And there's like 
I mean, again, back to the cultural preparation nonsense. It's like, thank God for it, because because uh, Gravel Pit. If you don't know Gravel Pit and you're not a hip-hop fan, but you uh, go check it out. It's a really, the sample is Yeah, Matt Welch, go check it out. It's really good. Okay. Yeah. Um, so maybe we should talk about this movie a little bit since we did spend some time watching it and I'm, I'm curious to get your perspectives on it. I'd seen much of what is there, um, before, but certainly we got to tell people what the movie is. The, the, the name of the film is, uh, the fall of Minneapolis. I think that's what it's called. Is that correct? Um, and it was released on rumble. You'll find it on YouTube as well. A couple of people have been talking about it recently. I know, uh, John and Glenn watched it and recorded an episode, uh, in which they talked about it at some length and their last names are that there's a quarter and Lowry. Oh, John, I mean, I really only have to say John and Glenn, if you don't know who those people are, something's wrong with you. Okay. The defect is with you yeah. and not with me as a presenter. Okay. Um, <clears throat> but we did finally get around to, to watching the whole thing. And I will say that, you know, it's certainly worth talking about the George Floyd of it all in general, but I'm always struck by just how crazy it is to watch the the derangement Jesus. of an entire society uh, over the course of a couple of days oh, wow. and weeks um, presented in that way. Um, it's easy to forget just how nuts things were as you were living through it, um, but, but watching it again and having that retrospective um, is pretty astonishing. Um, I don't know that there are a lot of facts about the case that were surprising to me, um, but I do want to hear what you guys think. I don't, I don't know if you had an opportunity to see all of the, the Floyd uh, body cam footage from that day before, um, but certainly that's the thing. That the that first people time I'd ever seen about. it. Yeah, yeah, it was the first time I'd ever seen it, and I think that I have a lot of problems with it. I think the film is misses um, in a lot of ways. I don't think it's a wonderfully constructed mm-hmm. film, which I will give them a pass on because they're not um, filmmakers. So, you know, uh, considering that, I think they did a, a decent job. But, you know, I don't like the stuff when you have a screen goes black and, you know, uh, always show, don't mm-hmm. tell. When they're like, you know, um, George Floyd says he can't breathe and he's not in the car. And it's like, and there's no knee on his neck <laughs> yeah. on the screen. It's like, don't say it, don't say that. Just leave that there and then we'll deduce, you know, what is true and what isn't true from that. So I thought there were some really clumsy bits of it. I thought they ignored some stuff, which um, uh, was very problematic. I mean, for instance, the pulmonologist, the Irish guy that came on um, during the trial and was like, now he died uh, because of the intervention of the police. Mm-hmm. And um, that wasn't dealt with at all. And that guy is like a real guy. The other one who um, conducts the uh, separate autopsy for the right. family is a total is a total crank. Hans Baden, I think his name is. Ha- not Han- is that uh, Hans. That's Baden? not Hans. It's something Baden. Uh, yeah, Baden is his last name. He's a, yeah, he's a, like a, a, a writer forensic pathologist to the stars. Yeah. He's a forensic celebrity. Yeah, like he did the OJ, he was like during the OJ trial and said all this stuff that would maybe vindicate OJ and then he backed off all of it later. So, I mean, he's somebody who you can hire yeah. to to tell you pretty much whatever you want to hear. Um, but I think that the the smartest thing that they did was to start the film for 15 minutes uh, with just body cam footage. Mm-hmm. Uh, not, uh, no edits as far as I could tell. And uh, just straight through body cam footage, which uh, was pretty enlightening mm-hmm. for me. I didn't, I hadn't seen all of that before. But I think the most powerful thing in the film, and I think I wish it was actually 
you know, because I think it's a, a separate from the guilt or innocence of Derek Chauvin is uh, the way the city handled yeah. um, yep. the aftermath yeah. and what they kind of did to the police. And I think the most affecting moments of the film are actually interviews with uh, police officers who are white, black, Asian. I mean, there's it's not like a bunch of like, you know, Minnesota guys just like, you know, I've been a cop beating people up for 10 years, 20 years. But no, it was like, it was a kind of sensitive portrayal in that sense. They don't mention, by the way, the woman who made the film's husband is the head yeah, of police detail. In, in Minnesota. Mm. Little detail you might want to mention and that, somewhere in the film. Uh, so, uh, and very that there mixed. was, uh, during the madness of the protests, there were at least 100 people outside of their house, um, like hitting uh, pinatas that had been made to them, like pinatas in effigy against her and her yeah. husband because she'd been a local TV reporter for a long time. Um, so yeah, that detail could have could have been in. Um, other details that I would have liked to have seen and didn't is um, they kept <clears throat> emphasizing that the body cam footage was not shown in the trial. Um, they never explained why. Mm -hmm. um, and it takes a lot of backfill of research to kind of, uh, well, some of it was introduced actually, some of that That's body right. cam footage. <clears throat> Uh, so a lot of that body cam footage was public for those who knew where to look and was discussed in the Washington post and the Minneapolis papers too. Um, so it was hard. I didn't pay hardly any attention to the trial itself. I know Camille, you did. So this came across to you as less new information than before, but for those who haven't, um, it is jarring and arresting. It's basically the cop point of view, the cop centric point of view. And the thing about that is there's a cop-centric point of view to be told about this whole story, particularly the voluntary uh, abdication of the third precinct um, mm -hmm. uh, police station uh, in the kind of uh, middle section by, of- By Bayer, Jacob Ferry, oh who is still my serving. God. <laughs> still serving as the oh mayor my of Oh my God, he is, is he not so the worst, So many punchable people in this movie, but he just looks like a, like a junior league version of uh, what's-his-face Trudeau up in Canada. Uh, or <laughs> Timothy Chalamet as mayor of, uh, uh, oh my God, you just want to punch him in the face. Yeah. I don't know. Oh, I God, don't so have bad, yeah. great faith that they are, you know, choosing the best moments of the mayor or of the police chief or of Keith Ellison, who is the prosecutor. Um, but all of them come across so horribly, particularly the mayor mm -hmm. and the police chief, like uh, shifty, a, a huge, um, uh, point of contention that they bring up and it is pretty persuasive as presented is that, um, the, uh, the, the hold, the restraint that Chauvin was using was a maximal restraint technique that's taught, um, in, uh, normal training for Minneapolis police. And in fact, I think only recently has been officially repudiated or, or discontinued by the police department. Um, and they, you know, have shown even photos of cops in, uh, using it um, in, in the manual style guide in pictures that look exactly like how he mm -hmm. is doing it. Exactly. Um, <clears throat> those yeah. photos also were introduced at trial. Um, so like it's. Wait, the, the, but, but they, they claim that the manual was not allowed to be introduced that's what, at trial. The photo right, in the manual. Right, so that, f that photo. And in, I presume that they're being Well, the photo in the that, manual yeah. was introduced in a motion to dismiss. Um, and the trial by one of the, uh, officers and it was, it was shown and written about. So it was in the courtroom. Judge saw it. 
um, is part of. And there was also testimony by experts about these techniques as well. I think there was pretty extensive discussion of it. But so, but it's not entirely true to say that. I mean, it to have included, it in motions of dismiss doesn't mean it that the jurors saw it. They like, they did. Yeah. So, but that whole process explaining what got um, introduced as evidence, I've seen some um, uh, discussion that it was the defense who chose not to show some of that body cam footage at trial, which would be just kind of bizarre decision. It, the, the movie's not good for that. The documentary is not good for showing precisely how these decisions were made. What it is mm -hmm. very good at is showing a whole bunch of cops uh, talking about even now, just getting choked up, talking about how screwed up that day, week, and et cetera was. They've lost, you know, 40% of their, of their force since then. Um, and, and it's very moving and all of them say this, yes, this was trained, this was taught, um, th the way this was done. So it, I, I found it to be very, like it does journalism, even though it's not a great documentary. Um, but like, sure. and also they interviewed two of yeah. the convicted cops from jail and that is just like. I mean, mm -hmm. the first, sh first Chauvin interview and the other cop, um, which I, you know, because of the racialization of, of everything, despite the fact that race wasn't actually mentioned at all, not even a single time in the court trial, that the other cop, who is black, um, was was interviewed too, and he said he didn't blame uh, Chauvin and think and thought that he did um, everything by the book. The one thing that is really interesting to be not dwelled upon or not even mentioned or made a, a, into an argument by the filmmakers. Which I think is some, something that I'm absolutely stunned that the defense counsel didn't uh, make an argument of is when you're trying to convince people that the move that he did was um, what he was trained to do. And they say, no, that wasn't in the manual. The police chief says this. And then, of course, it cuts back to people who are, you know, actually one of which is Derek Chauvin's mother who brings out his training manual, which by the way, didn't look very well thumbed, just so for the record, it looked very new. Um, and, uh, and said, this is his training manual and he learned it and it's in here. The one way of proving that is the audio from the body cam footage. They use yeah. the acronym. He mm -hmm. says, should we do maximum restraint? What is it? MRT, MRT or yeah. something? Yeah. MTR? And he, he, he actually refers to a he, piece of equipment that they typically use when they're putting people in that, yeah. in that position. And he uses the yeah. acronym. So clearly they all know what this acronym is. Clearly they've been trained in this. It's not something you just make up. You, or, or you would just say, throw the dude in the ground and just restrain him, put your knee yeah. on his neck. I mean, no, they're using the actual technical term for this to, to restrain him. I mean, the one thing that you come away from this, I mean, it, it doesn't matter what the arguments are. It doesn't matter what you think of Chauvin's guilt mm -hmm. or innocence or the response to it. I think the average person just watching that body cam footage sees somebody who's really, really high, um, or really high, like or at really least behaving very strangely, <laughs> very yeah. strangely. I would say very strangely. Uh, that's the first thing. The second thing is um, somebody who is resisting arrest the entire way. He's not. I mean, he if if it is in fact true what the jury decided that he was um, killed by Derek Chauvin and because of Derek Chauvin. If that is in fact true, had he not resisted arrest, he'd be alive today. Full stop. If that's what you believe, then you have to believe that too. That there is no point. I mean, the Rodney King video, the whole controversy of that when they said, you know, 180 seconds, I can't even remember how long, you know, remember that, yeah. Matt? They said the X number of seconds that it was. 
of course, the guy was like focusing the camera and, you know, the the video that you saw didn't include the out of focus stuff where they were trying to take him down with a taser, et cetera. And the thing about that was what was so affecting about that was you never saw any cops interacting, trying to be reasonable. Mm-hmm. It was Timothy Wind. It was Stacey Coons. It was these guys just whacking the shit out of him until they had no more energy yeah. to whack the shit out of the guy anymore. In this, you see unbelievable levels of restraint of just like, come on, I'm like, you're gonna shoot me, you're gonna shoot me. He's like, I'm not gonna shoot you. Come on, just get your hands up, get out of the car, sit down. And and then seeing him say, um, I can't breathe before he's on the ground. I mean, all of that to the average person watching is a lot mm-hmm. different than just the um, video shot by the person across the street. It just, it changes the your idea yeah. about it in a way. And particularly someone like me who didn't, delve that deeply into yeah in, in the immediate aftermath or at least when the the story first became national news all we had was some film shot from the vantage point of the spec the onlookers and you miss all of the context them arriving at the convenience store because they've been called because someone passed a fake bill them going out to confront the people who were passing fake bills and discovering george floyd behind the wheel of a car who immediately starts behaving in a very strange way, talking about um, insisting that he doesn't want to be shot again, um, which apparently he was not shot by a police officer, despite the fact that he insists he was, um, that his mother just just died, which again, it happened two years earlier, um, and just generally not responding in a sensible way to basic commands, like let me see your hands, for example. Um, And immediately, as Moynihan alluded to, He's pulled out of the car. He's sitting on, against the wall uh, before being taken across the street to a cruiser. And he begins talking about being unable to breathe from there, <laughs> like well before they're even trying to put him into a squad car, although he complains all throughout that. He insists on being pulled out of the squad car and being laid on the ground. It's it's a tremendous amount of context, as you said, Moynihan. And I, I definitely think seeing it that way changes things. Um, the... The, the other two things that stood out to me, um, Welch, we talked a little bit about some of the people who aren't covered in glory as uh, when you watch this, but Keith Ellison, um, certainly the Minnesota attorney general, former member of the House of Representatives, um, there are severe questions about what the prosecution did in this case and whether or not they did everything in a sort of above board way. The fact that they did, they were aware of certain complicating facts like the medical exam um, that was conducted by the state like not really being particularly conclusive with respect to what might have actually transpired um, but even in the pre- presentation of the state's evidence like the absence of any kind of physical evidence suggesting that dude was asphyxiated um, as a result of the pressure applied um, seems pretty important um, as I think was also alluded to you know whether or not being placed in the prone position um, simply helped contribute to possibly um, allowing him to allowing George Floyd to die. There are real questions about that that are worth exploring, but all of that is pretty complicated and nuanced and none of it seems to seems to, to, to actually mesh really well with the, the broader narrative about, well, he had his knee on his neck for minutes and that's why this man died. That doesn't seem to be true. And what also doesn't seem to be true is there's nothing that's been presented, not in the case, not for the public in general, not in any sort of reporting I've seen 
that suggests that race has anything to do with what happened here. And that's been the case for years now. There's just not an iota of evidence. Um, so the fact that this case uh, has, has the public perception about this case has formed in a very particular way. Um, and that there's just been this total abdication of like journalistic responsibility and interest in the case is what leads to a situation like this where the the thing that people are drawing insights from that seems to help that might help to to reshape the narrative about what took place here is this independent documentary crowdsourced and not not yeah and not some robust piece of investigative journalism by the New York Times or the even the Wall Street Journal um, or Fox News for that matter um, or the you, you get this or the federal you get government Candace Owens there's a there's yeah. I think uh, it's I think possible to infer use this as a as a kind of textbook case of how the culture and how the institutions changed in seven years, uh, which is to say, in 2014 when we had probably the most similar thing happen, which was um, Ferguson, Missouri, right? Mm -hmm. um, where mm -hmm. there was a broad public understanding of something and what took place. There was a slogan that came out of it, and a lot of it turns out not to be true. Um, and that one reason why we know that a lot of the initial reporting and uh, and and public understanding and activist uh, exploitation of a thing turned out not to be true is because there's two really impressive federal government investigations, Department of Justice um, uh, Investor, Inspector General reports, I believe it was, uh, that looked into this with great detail and came up with... Uh, a much different and and very believable kind of laying out what happened in the case, um, and then you know media that's associated with that also did some deep dive work and mm -hmm. uh, and it was impressive. And now we know a whole lot about it. People chose to not uh, learn that, just as they chose mm -hmm. not to eventually learn what happened in the Matthew Shepard case. To the extent that Joe Biden still mischaracterizes it. Um, uh, as president, all these years later, um, but there are enough institutions. Um, that have uh, basic investigatory uh, chops and self-respect that they can deal with it. Seven years later, that's less true. Um, mm -hmm. And so we, uh, instead of having like super respectable mediating institutions and mediating journalism, um, it's you have to get crowdfunded, um, you know, definitely conservative news sources come out there and give a perspective that was sort of missing, which is the cop perspective in a town where there was a cop breakdown and a leadership abdication and just all kinds of weird things. And that's going to be one-sided too. Um, and has, have its problems that we've mentioned before, uh, you know, Minneapolis has a, a long history of really kind of crappy policing. And I know we have some Minneapolis cops there and they're getting mad at me right now. Um, but let's say contentious <laughs> policing that, that is not touched upon in this documentary. And that's definitely part of, the ability or, or people's willingness to believe the worst about Derek Chauvin. Um, also, like, let's be honest, like he looks like a dick cop, just if, as you're taking the, the snap. And I don't, wow. I say this as someone with, wow, with Matt no, I mean, you look at him, everyone has met a cop like that who has that look on his face. Like uh, it's, it's really like the Covington kid smirk, the look on Derek look Chauvin. determination and compassion for his fellow human. He just <laughs> wants to protect protect us yeah i mean he's standing between us and total chaos people inferred so much on the look on his face and the knee allegedly on the neck and although we there's i think reason to believe after looking at all this stuff that some of it might have been on his shoulder um, a lot of it and uh and uh, they 
they don't do a great job of that, mm-hmm. of, 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 of really showing like how much is on the shoulder, yeah. how much um, is on the neck. But also, by the way, there's there there was a comment by one of the doctors that um, pressure on the shoulder blade can can restrict sure. breathing too, and that could potentially. I mean, it, 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 is that something that happened? Um, I, I don't know. I mean, but they don't explore it. I mean, it's this is a counterpoint documentary rather than a let's look at the evidence documentary. And the medical examiner who they say you know this guy Baker who does the initial examination is on the stand. They don't show any of this in which he says, yeah, I mean, the, the lack of oxygen definitely was, was a factor and the drugs were a factor too. The pre-existing things were a factor too. But I think the quote from him at the time was it wasn't a top line. Those were not top line factors. So you can't actually use him as vindicating unless you kind of have a, I mean, what the the implication is, is that he was pressured because there's some interaction where he says, you know, you know, you don't want to get this one wrong Depending and now look, I think the interesting thing is less than the average person watching this cannot determine from sort of various and 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 kind of weirdly differentiated medical diagnoses. Where none of us are qualified for that. We can do, and what we can come to conclusion is that I think if you took Derek Chauvin, you took this trial, you took everything from it, and put it in, you know, on the moon or in, you know, uh, the far uh, recesses of Iceland or something and got a bunch of people there as jurors who had never heard this, didn't know what was happening outside the courtroom. It is pointed out in the film, which I think is correct. They come into the courtroom and there's protests and it's surrounded by razor wire, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And there is that idea that if you get this wrong, the country will burn. That with LA, LA 92 all over again, if you take that all away, and if anybody has served on a jury, and from this stupid, silly one that I served on recently to you know another one that I did a long, long time ago, is that any doubt um, is going to end in acquittal? Like any, like particularly on a on a murder charge in which Derek Chauvin gets twenty two, twenty three years and was stabbed how many times About in prison last number, week? Yeah. Many, many, many times. About the same number. And um, so if you're looking at that objectively and you have these conflicting reports from doctors and you're a juror, you kind of have to say, well, this is obviously not premeditated murder. I mean, there's no evidence that he got up that morning with the desire to kill somebody. And if it is something that's going to result in 23 years in prison and the people that are also there trying to do their job who are calling the EMTs like 30 seconds into the whole thing are also getting three years, four years. I mean, three other people go to jail, two of whom in, you know, again, this is a case that has been made about race and we have to bring it up. Then two of those three are non-white people. Um, One is black, one is Asian, and they go to jail for three plus years for just being there and not, you know, uh, intervening, I guess. But they are intervening, actually. And he says, like, should we do this? Should we low him over? Is this? And, like, and, you know, what are you supposed to do? Tackle Derek Chauvin and pull him? I mean, it's kind of a hard situation to be in. But I think that if you're a jury that is not tainted by all that information, very difficult to do, and thinking I have to make a decision based on politics and based on what is right for the country, what is going to transpire if this is a not guilty verdict that target that was looted will now just be burned to the ground and every other store around it will be looted because that's the reaction to injustice is to steal sneakers and set things on fire, then I imagine that is uh, is having an influence. You can't prove it, but 
I think it's pretty obvious to suggest that it is. And I think it's if it independent of all that stuff, you 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 gotta. I mean, you kind of have to acquit the guy, right? It doesn't strike me that that's a twenty three year sentence when you see the fact that they did call the the um, EMTs who fucked up and went to the wrong place uh, immediately, and that they he was doing something that was by the book, um, according to other cops, according to a cop that is in jail who was not him, says it was by the book, and that it's in the manual. You have to suggest like, well, I don't know. It's kind of a hard thing to put a guy in jail for 22-odd years for what he was taught to do, if that is it does. It did feel in the moment that there was a, a sense that Chauvin was being, in some respects, scapegoated, and the rest of the officers as well for a failure there. Um, you did have this palpable sense that if this was decided the wrong way, that the city might explode. Um, and the the na- national Country. attention was certainly on this. I mean, Biden immediately after the decision came in, um, gave a presser from the White House, joined by Kamala Harris, if I remember correctly. Um, and I, I remember being um, on Fox News like that day, like responding to the verdict. Uh, and I remember accepting the invitation to do that with a little bit of trepidation, like knowing, oh, yeah, I'll yeah. be like the first person to talk about this for on the network um, after the decision comes in. So much so that I was interrupted by Biden. Um, but even at the time, my perspective was that the the presentation of the evidence in the case seemed certainly didn't leave me with any sort of conclusive sense um, that, you know, a a murder had taken place. Um, I do think just based on my own appraisal of the evidence that there seemed to have been decisions that were made by law enforcement that day that could have potentially contributed to Floyd's death. And that in general, um, if you have someone who's behaving the way Floyd is and who does become unresponsive mm. while they are restrained um, and in your custody, you have certain obligations to to look after this person. And the fact that they were kind of beginning to be not quite encircled, um, but that there was a crowd gathering and the crowd was agitated, um, that's not really an excuse. Uh, and that might be like the best excuse that they could actually put forward to explain why they weren't more attentive um, with respect to his his situation there and the fact that he did seem to be in some distress, the fact that he was, you know, just kind of generally crazy, again, it doesn't, that's not really exculpatory. But you know, you don't, you don't see that, correct, and you don't see that in this documentary is another, another uh, strike against it, is when he is unresponsive. I mean, they show the officer inside of, one of the officers inside the ambulance uh, trying to mm-hmm. perform um, CPR, right? And we don't know, like, when does somebody notice? Because you don't see that bit, which the whole first bit is completely um, unedited. And then all of a sudden, it's like, wait, well, okay, so when are we seeing that that he's no longer responsive? And are people going and checking and seeing if he's responsive? I and mean, what that whole thing is left out. And it's just, I think, slightly, I think it's a it's a weird sleight of hand. And it makes me very suspicious that they're not, they're not showing that. that and that's it. Yeah, go ahead, man. I think that um, just viscerally, and I say this as someone with not a, a great knowledge base of basic police procedure, but the pulling of the gun within the first five seconds and the like, like, uh, like very seriousness of the voice of the cop struck me as as weirdly escalatory. Right, right at the top. I get it. He's a strong dude, and he's acting weird. Wasn't that like? Wasn't it like four? It was like his fourth day on the job too. Or yeah, something, right? something like that too. 
or was it, there was one guy who was his first day on the job or second day on the job, but it was like, it seems, and we have some cop listeners and I would love you guys to write <coughs> in because I noticed that mm-hmm. too. Um, that he pulls the gun. And he's like, close I get to him. The guy's, I mean, he's pulling a gun. He's, he's, he's close eight to inches him, but, away from him. But I think that's, but that's part of it. If you are confronting someone who is a suspect, you're investigating a situation, you don't know what they have, and you can only see one of their hands, certainly from the, the vantage point of the lapel camera. Like, we can only see one of George Floyd's hands. The other appears to be lower and could very well be in the console of the car, like, searching for something. Like, Giving, giving, yeah, I think giving, he's searching for drugs. Giving to a eat. strong, yeah, giving seriously. a strong command at that moment because he hadn't like raised the gun to the point where we could see it um, at that point. Even if he had his hand on it in a holster, and then bringing up the firearm when this person makes it pretty clear that they're not interested in complying with your commands in a very straightforward way. They recognize that you're a police officer. They're they're doing something which could either be interpreted as behaving irrationally and insane and maybe just being high out of your damn mind or stalling for time while you look for a weapon. Do you raise a firearm at that point and point it at someone and say, comply with my commands? I'm in a position that I I might be able to defend myself from if in fact you do produce a weapon or do something else, like try to pull off in this vehicle. I mean, it is a, it is a difficult situation, but I don't see, I didn't see anything in the video, at least in that initial bit of the encounter that seemed to me completely outside of the bounds of like a reasonable police procedure. It seemed like rational. Yeah. I don't know. At least from my perspective, but one thing that, that we should, but it definitely didn't seem racist. Importantly, (laughs) I could imagine anyone of any background being confronted in precisely that way. And I, I will say that I've, I've had a situation somewhat like that where police had guns drawn pretty quickly because I had things to say. Um, <laughs> about the Fed. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a separate matter. But yeah, yeah, racial element of it, which is you know kind of <laughs> in- inevitable. But I saw a thing on uh, Vice the other day that that horrible uh, company that I used to work for. But it was there was a guy who was killed um, in uh, Colombia who was like going. He, he he met a woman online, and I saw the news story, and I read the news story. But then I see the Vice version, which I think is hilarious. The guy was a comedian, apparently, but he goes to Columbia, meets a woman online, and he goes to meet her, and he's found murdered. Uh, the headline of the Vice one uh, was amazing, and this is actually relevant here, because the headline was, Asian American comedian murdered in Columbia after a meeting a woman huh? online. The fact that he's Asian American <laughs> literally has nothing to do with it. It's like you, like the the immediate, like, okay, there's a there's a, a white comp, and there's a black suspect. There's like an, it, it, the obsession with identity kind of manifests in the weirdest ways. This Asian American guy was killed. I mean, that, that literally, there's no suggestion that has anything to do with it. But um, the one thing that that makes me look at these kind of documentaries with a little more of an open mind. So these kind of cases that have like a political valence to them, you end up being lied to all the time. Uh, Jacob Blake. I mean, how many, how many lies were told about the Jacob Blake interaction? Mm. So much so that Joe Biden, when I was there in Kenosha, I was there with a the camera crew in Kenosha and Joe Biden came the day that I was there to meet with Jacob Blake and his family, somebody who's been, who, had, who had a restraining order for, for sexually assaulting his ex-girlfriend and had a, drew a knife on the police with his child in the car it's just every bad thing you can possibly do and not a nice character, it seems. Um, that was all bullshit, right? I mean, you look back to Mumia Abu-Jamal, 
I mean, all, everything you found out about, like the, the guys re remained in jail and when the information, I mean, there was protests about this every weekend when I was in college. And it got so bad when you looked at it so obvious that even Michael Moore said in his book, like, it seems like Mumia killed that cop. Um, but that's still today. I saw somebody with a free Mumia thing on their uh, Twitter handle the other day. I mean, oh, so many of these cases that can have a positive political effect for the people that are advocating for the accused tend to be slathered in bullshit, lies, and misrepresentations. I mean, the Rosenbergs weren't the subject of nationwide uh, protest, I mean, uh, global protests in the 1950s because there was so much evidence that they were innocent. It was because the cause that they represented and what the prosecutors represented, which was. I don't know. <laughs> Sorry. I, I think just my watch is like, it thinks the Rosenbergs are innocent. Uh, the, you know, Sacco and Vanzetti, all of these things are there for a political reason. I mean, the, 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 the guilt of these people in, in hindsight, and when you really look at it in a kind of forensic way, seems fairly clear, but there's so much uh, um, kind of misdirection because if the misdirection succeeds, the politics and your side uh, benefit greatly. And that, that is obviously what happened here too. I will add one last bit uh, of of potential complication to that, and it also goes kind of unmentioned in the documentary, is that, and this is, we talked about this a lot while the trial was ongoing, it's hard to prosecute, um, even charge in some cases, a cop. Um, it uh, Or it has yeah. historically been hard up until now. Maybe this is the case where that changes or that changed. Or maybe it's a one-off because the summer of 2020, everyone lost their damn fool minds. Um, it's unclear, um, but generally speaking, there is a mass deference given, not a vast deference, but a mass deference <laughs> given to um, police side of uh, the equation. There are uh, many cases sort of evidentiary um, puts uh, that where, you know, cops aren't even uh, interviewed within X number of hours or days after a use of force um, uh, kind of case. There are qualified immunity that's granted uh, specifically to prosecutors, but sometimes to police. Um, it usually has to do with civil trials and not criminal trials, but there is just a stack that is usually decked in favor of not prosecuting police. Every damn day, there is an example. In fact, today, um, uh, uh, Eric Umansky is a pretty good journalist for ProPublica. I used to be at, uh, he lives in my neighborhood here too, um, used to be at Mother Jones, left-leaning guy, investigative. Um, he did a deep dive piece um, and we're recording this on Thursday, I think, um, about the difficulty of getting body cam uh, footage released. Um, that usually is police department dependent. In fact, in this case, in the Derek Chauvin case, it was the police department blocking the initial release of the body cam footage that would have changed potentially the narrative at the top, or at least complicated it. That body cam footage started trickling out like two months later because of the police, not because of uh, other people, because I, who knows what their calculation was going into it. But the Eric Umansky piece um, talked about how the NYPD, in particular, um, is just a stickler for not releasing uh, these uh, footages, and uh, for sometimes they're doing it to protect the police from uh, uh, wrongful uh, use of force lawsuits and uh, and criminal prosecution too. So. Um, it's usually in that direction. Maybe this is the case where now the pendulum is swung and it's going towards injustice in another way. But that that's part of, yeah, I think, the yeah, complications yeah. of all this. I, 
I think that the, the the lack of releasing it on the Minneapolis side, it, it plays exactly into what you see when the police precinct is overrun mm-hmm. and what you see when the target is being looted. I mean, you can call in the National Guard, you can call in the state police, you can use the city police, you can use every resource you have. And they didn't want to do that because they're thinking, oh, this looks bad. We don't want to inflame the situation. It's like... <clears throat> Inflame the situation is a is a is a correct word to mm-hmm. use because everything is inflamed quite literally all around the city, yeah. and there is a cowardice that like oh well we don't want to make people more angry. It's like these people aren't angry about anything in particular. It's an opportunity for destruction. The, the percentage well, of those people yeah. who are is angry it? and actually have a political is probably 10%, maybe 15%. But the ones that you see are like setting fire to a gas station. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, there's no, there's no, like that produces nothing. And as I said in a text to you guys, the one thing that, that, you know, you tell everybody, and you used to be this, you know, like kind of funny thing about the conversation that you have to have with your kid <laughs> about interacting with the police is that guess what? No one has ever succeeded resisting a cop in any way. Never. Well, some some people have managed to get that, away for a while. Get away, yeah. but he's not trying to get. Yeah, I mean, just like he's just like fighting. Like, what are you doing? And and yeah, and when you get away, unless you're moving to fucking Mexico and having reconstructive surgery, you're not getting away for yeah, very long. Come for you. I mean, it's just kind of yeah. It's ridiculous. It. it um, I, I I completely concur with all that. I think uh, it might be appropriate for us to discuss something else that appeared in, in the Economist 1843 magazine um, today. Actually, it was a piece by James <laughs> by James Bennett, formerly of the New York Times, who in June of 2020 uh, resigned from his position there um, after pre- pre- permitting a U.S. congressperson to publish something in its editorial pages that some people deemed controversial. Namely, um, it was a call for having uh, there be a forceful government response to some of the protests that were sweeping across the nation. Um, and many people inside the Times didn't like this. At the time, there was, uh, I guess, a, a tweet that was being shared by many, many people just cut and pasted. Um, and it just insisted that the publication of that particular editorial would put at, at risk the lives of people who worked for the New York Times, particularly staffers of color. Um, Did that end up happening? That, any, that, that someone they were was, at risk? was murdered and killed? Was someone murdered? No, no they weren't. <laughs> so it, again, you could be at risk and not die, I suppose. Um, but Bennett's piece does... It'd be, it would be bad, though, if like if a headline in the same newspaper the next day was four times staffers murdered overnight in various places in the city because of Tom Cotton. <laughs> like, it's just like, what? I'm sorry, what? Put in danger? And it's oh, yes. it's a really it's a long ish piece about four thousand odd words, um, but I think it's worth it's worth reading. There are a couple of p- bits in there um, that that maybe we should pay some special attention to, um, particularly the fact that what what Bennett finally does, and he's been pretty quiet for a while since his departure from the New York Times and eventually joining um, the the Economist. Um, but he, he does take, uh, as I think as you described it, Moynihan, a couple of big swings in here, um, describing the culture at the times and giving you a sense of the the interactions he was having with the leadership of the publication, um, including Schultzberger, the uh, the current um, what's what's his official role there? He's the chairman and publisher. Um, 
I think he's the chairman of public. Yeah, there's this one interaction described. One, I mean, he he generally describes the place as going from having a a kind of bias towards a particular um, political perspective towards having just an illiberal aversion to even permitting certain kinds of opinions to appear in its pages. Um, And there have been people like our friend Barry Weiss who've talked about this publicly and certainly some of the people who have been ousted from there have talked about this. Um, but you, you've you been waiting to see this sort of thing um, come out of Bennett. But this one interaction, which Hulsberger, I think, is, is worth paying some attention to, where he says, uh, the Times' failure to honor its own stated principles of openness and to a range of views was particularly hard for a handful of conservative writers, some of whom would complain about being flyspecked and abused by colleagues. One day when I relayed a conservative concern, a conservative's concern about the double standard to Schultzberger, um, Salzberger, he lost his patience. He told me to inform complaining conservatives that that's just how it was. There was a double standard and he should get used to it. A publication that promises its readers to stand apart from politics should not have different standards for different writers based on their politics. But I delivered the message. There are many things I regret about my tenure as editor, editorial page editor. That is the only act of which I am ashamed. Wait, the shame is what his when Salzberger said that in response to deliver to deliver to deliver that message. He relayed relayed the message. message. Um, Yeah. 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 I I think that James Mm -hmm. Bennett should retain a little bit of uh, shame Mm -hmm. for um, his actions during the Tom Cotton controversy, because at some point he came out and sort of apologized and prevaricated and backtracked Mm -hmm. and went through the struggle session, um, which, of course, didn't save his job. Um, and that's, uh, uh, I can only imagine is a very difficult moment. Uh, and keep in mind, he's a guy who was, uh, tapped by many to be the heir apparent to Dean Baquet as uh, the next editor in chief of New York times. It was in the conversation at least. So, um, he was, I'm sure thinking politically, but that wasn't a brave moment then. And, and also like that conversation with Salzberger that he's relaying, I'm glad that he's doing it three and a half years later after all of this. I mean, Barry Weiss took a lot of flack by writing this um, less detail, less, you know, interpersonal, but like basically on her way out Mm -hmm. the door, um, uh, you know, weeks after the Tom Cotton uh, situation, uh, she said all of this and everyone's like, oh my God, she's just wrong. There isn't a generation gap at the New York Times. This is I'm unfair, so blah, blah, blah. People are um, upset about she that. was right. <laughs> she's been vindicated by Completely. events. Repeatedly. Uh, maybe not every single, <laughs> every single detail because I, I don't know about it, but like broad brush, yes, she was right. And she also did it in a timely fashion, not necessarily write a book length treatment um, of her own uh, situation three and a half years later in the pages of The Economist. So I'm glad to see it. Um, uh, it seems like a weird timing. It just sort of felt like he's actually, that was a chapter of a memoir or like the the workup of of, uh, of an account, which would be interesting to read. Um, but, um, you know, The Economist magazine has long specialized in coming around five years late to something that people have already noticed. Like, I'm sure they're right now yeah. saying, like, you know what, there's been a lot of, uh, interesting sort of uh, and, and potentially deleterious anti-free speech agitation on college campuses for a while here, especially with this DEI offices mm. and and maybe some anti-Semitism has, has bubbled up. They're going to write that next year. Uh, you <laughs> yeah, know, it's, yeah. just, it's they ratify <laughs> conventional wisdom after the fact. I, I think 
I think that's right, particularly with Becky's, uh, Becky, um, uh, with Bennett's apology. Because mm-hmm. um, the thing about fanatics and about political extremists, cult members, et cetera, is that the initial offense, this is what happens when you, it's, it's kind of a, one of the sort of bare, base principles of being a fanatic, is that the principal offense can never be forgiven. Because that is ideological wrong think. It means that you're wired in the wrong way, which is precisely why from 1975 to 1978, the Vietnamese decided when they weren't going to kill you if you work for the South Vietnamese, they were going to send you to a quote-unquote re-education camp. It's re-education is the thing because it's not, it's like, oh, you can't correct your error. You have to re-educate yourself. That's like, you know, do the work. That's the modern version of it, right? You have to do the work to rewire your brain to having these errant thoughts that might be about sort of ideological pluralism and allowing different points of view. That itself was the main offense. So if Bennett thought, and if anybody out there ever thinks, that they can make the mistake and then apologize their way out Mm -hmm. of it, the mistake itself is unforgivable. Because the mistake itself comes from a quote-unquote bad place, somebody who doesn't see the world the way that the correct people see it. And that is the problem that, that you say, like people, you know, uh, you know, the gap, this sort of political gap has widened to, to a point that, you know, we can't get anything done in America. Well, maybe, but I think that more than anything, it's not about the, it's about, it's about the rise and the, the sort of rewarding of fanaticism. Fanaticism has been rewarded in a way over the past sort of five, maybe almost 10 years, we start around Michael Brown and Ferguson, to a way that like you can say things that are so crazy. And I think that this is the interesting thing about the Israel stuff on campus is that these people are like, you know, celebrate the, the resistance, you know, uh, uh, to our martyrs. Let's put this on the side of a building at Georgetown. They're kind of shocked because they've been saying this stuff for a very long time. Not only without repercussion, but it's just, you know, to, to actually fight back against it itself is the offense. And you will be like, oh, so you hate black people? If you say, like, you know, some of these people have these radical, radical, like, uh, uh, um, racial ideas, like your Max Kendi, whose book literally says Martin Luther King harbored racist ideas about black people. So bananas, half this stuff. To argue against that, you get, and here's my transition for you, Camille. You get uh, Nicole Hannah Jones, mm-hmm. people that work at the New York Times mm-hmm. who believe that any questioning of, say, Claudine Gay, like, oh, the, like, oh, just because a black woman is it, that's why. No, no, it's because she's a plagiarist and she's never pr- uh, published a book and she's published 11 ac- uh, peer reviewed academic papers, some of which are incoherent. And the previous, <laughs> one of the previous presidents of Harvard was, um, you know, the head of the IMF and the uh, secretary of the treasury, all the same. This is Larry Summers, uh, you know, you know, 15, 20 books. I mean, pretty impressive. And so when I look at Claudine Gay, I don't see that because like, oh, this is a, but I just like, no, no, this is, there's a very thin academic record for someone who is the president of the most um, elite vaunted university on planet earth. And that reaction to it, which is so extreme. It's an extremist reaction. I mean, her cousin, Roxanne Gay, is the master of bizarro extremist reactions to things. And they're never questioned. Because to question the extremism is the thing that's accused of extremism, which is very, very weird, bizarro world that we live in. 
Yeah, the Claudine Gay situation, which is still unfolding, has been very interesting to watch. I mean, you you had these three leaders of prominent um, private universities show up on Capitol Hill, and they have this fiery exchange with uh, various congresspersons, and then there's the fallout afterwards. And we've had, I think, just one resignation at this point, right? Um, and then yep. Gay yeah, at, at Harvard has a situation where <laughs> – there is this this seeming vote of confidence on the part of the faculty there and various other people. Um, but that vote of confidence is happening at the same time that more and more evidence continues to come out that suggests that she might have been involved in some like serial plagiarism. So in addition to having a thin resume, the resume that you do have, the things that you have published, seem to not be entirely your own. Um, this is mm-hmm. a pretty profound mistake, particularly for an educator, particularly for a person who is leading an academic institution, which I have to imagine has bounced plenty of students for the egregious crime of lifting 50, other people's 50, information. 50, I think, in the past couple of years. I mean, maybe in the last did, year. Yeah. I'm not surprised. Yeah. Uh, wish the number were, I suspect the number pro- could be higher. Um, <laughs> and. Mm-hmm. It would be amazing um, and pretty pretty outlandish, actually, if she managed to completely survive this without a serious examination on the part of the university um, to take a look at this. But the fact that they don't, whether or not they do, is that, is that obvious evidence of racial bias um, in favor of a gay because of her race? It's unclear. I don't know. Um, in, in precisely the same way that I would say about the George Floyd's. Well, if it's not that, it's her politics. Well, I I think that there is at least reason to speculate, um, that her politics or her race and her politics could be factors here that are, um, helping to produce a more favorable outcome for her than might otherwise be the case. Um, but Camille, I think it's, I think it's this, I mean, it's not even, I think it's more that. When I, what I was just saying about people like Roxanne Gay, about people like Nicole Hannah-Jones and Max Kendi, who throw these unbelievably toxic charges around with almost zero evidence mm-hmm. and there's no repercussions for doing so, is that I think that they are worried more than anything mm-hmm. about firing the first black female president of Harvard will be itself met with very difficult accusations of racism itself. Sure. And then having to respond to that, they don't want to get themselves in the situation. And so therefore, we'll just let it slide and maybe the storm will pass. Because keep in mind, there was reporting yesterday that, and I'll tell uh, listeners this now, I I knew about these allegations three weeks ago. Um, uh, They were sent to me and I was looking into them. And some of the stuff, particularly from her PhD dissertation, seemed pretty straightforward. Um, and again, you typically pretty, with pretty straightforwardly yeah, plagiarism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, it's it's not a, the stuff that is absolutely not allowed, particularly from the the Harvard um, Student Code, which even you know allows for people to be sanctioned for things like conceptual plagiarism, for sort of like borrowing people's kind of general ideas sure. for a paper and rewriting them. Um, but this has been under investigation, and they chose not to do anything about it. And I just don't suspect if it was somebody who is in the Harvard position of James Bennett vis-a-vis 
the editorial that he published, that they would be so forgiving. Mm-hmm. By which I mean, if the politics were, and that's why I say maybe it's politics too, mm-hmm. if the politics were different, if it wasn't, you know, Chris Rufo that was the one that first tweeted this. I mean, he got the information that I got. I mean, it's not that he broke this story and was looking into <laughs> it. I mean, someone gave it to him and someone like gave it to me. So. Yeah. But I held back on it for a, for a bunch of reasons that, you know, you really want to make sure about this uh-huh. stuff. Um, and so I, I, I held back for, I, I thought the first one, I also, by the way, was willing to give somebody a pass um, when it was 1998, if they hadn't done it since. Not a pass, but, you know, pointing it out, but like, look, we've committed a crime and then we've righted the ship. And then I was looking into her more recent stuff. Usually you find these patterns, but she just has such a thin publishing record right. that it's hard to find patterns. <laughs> <You know? laughs> That's one way to inoculate, inoculate yourself uh, against getting exactly. in trouble for don't academic write, fraud. Do, just don't publish anything. Yeah. I don't have anything yeah, to don't say don't publish right anything. Now. Yeah. Um, I didn't plagiarize. I didn't write. It was, it was interesting <laughs> to see Nicole Hannah-Jones talking to Abby Phillips on CNN earlier this week. And it, it, in the interview, I mean, Abby and her producers contextualize things by insisting that, you know, a cabal of angry conservatives are now going after Claudine Gay. And they are, they are critical of her on account of her race. At no point did they address the looming, growing plagiarism um, scandal. Like that seems like a really big deal. Um, But it was interesting to hear Nicole Hannah-Jones explicitly say, you know, I don't see, you know, it's beyond me. I don't understand why people are bringing race into this. I don't see any evidence that race in particular is an issue. I mean, I could say that about so many circumstances where Nicole Hannah-Jones drags race into things. Um, And the George Floyd situation is one of many, many examples of that. In fact, it is interesting that the single single thing that she is best known for is her ambitious 1619 project. And ambitious, I think, is a fair word to attribute to to that particular project, which which imag- which effectively sees because it's often sees- a failure. You'd be like, well, that was ambitious. <laughs> but the project, but the project sees only race. It sees race and only race as the fundamental thing that has made America what it is today. That in every single every single facet of American history, the single most important thing that you need to focus on, the single thing that has made America is exceptional is race, and in particular, it's many, many grave crimes with respect to the way that it is disempowered and disenfranchised um, people of African ancestry in this country. Although I suppose I should say black people or something along those lines. So, you know, maybe recent African ancestry, all of these ways of referring to people are are kind of silly and stupid, if you actually think about it a little bit. Um, But yeah, it it was... disappointing to see CNN like use that framing to use essentially like the easiest to lampoon critics and to ignore the fact that a universe of people are outraged by this or at least flummoxed by what they're seeing and that it is pretty bizarre to have uh, the person who's leading a a prestigious university not have uh, an appropriately prestigious CV and for that CV to seemingly contain a great many things that are perhaps not entirely true. So, And, and particularly like where there it. was, it was noted, by the way, I'm sorry, Matt, I'm just very briefly, there was noted that um, by, I don't know if it was Bill Ackman or somebody who pointed this out, that in the search for the new president, it mm-hmm. was explicitly said, yeah, that, Ackman you know, said that much first. like Joe, 
Yeah, much like Joe Biden and a Supreme Court pick is that, um, or you know, or a vice presidential uh-huh. pick. We're going to do this for this reason, you know. Yeah. And the old joke that it replies here when p- people tell you they're going to do something, believe them. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just to give special shout out to um, House Republicans who never look uh, for, n- never pass up an opportunity to step on their own uh, <laughs> appendages. Um, after Elise Stefanik, um, you know, that was like a, a consequential House hearing, probably the most uh, consequential for the people who were involved since Rafael Palmero and Mark McGuire uh, <laughs> took the stand in 2005 yeah. to talk about their steroid use or to not talk about their steroid use. Um, hasn't been great for their Hall of Fame candidacies since. So Elise Stefanik, lover or hater, and a lot of people uh, fall in the latter category, she accomplished something in that exchange, uh, and it has been kind of consequential and it's big. And so House Republicans are like, cool, um, let's have a resolution uh, <laughs> saying that they need to fire uh, Roxanne Gay, or not Roxanne Gay, but, you know, the, the, the Harvard mm-hmm. gal, come on. Uh, and, uh, and the, uh, and the MIT of it's just, no, get out of it. Stop it. You know, uh, like we'll, we'll give you a pass. Moynihan didn't like it. He doesn't like generally the browbeating of private citizens on, on, uh, and congressional hearings. And, and, uh, and I'm very sympathetic to that. Usually Congress, I'd be happy if they like passed a budget and you know, doing the <laughs> things that they're supposed to do, yeah, yeah. but it was, a, it was, you know, it was interesting and, and it it's was, produced a sure. lot of chatter, for sure. um, you know, the, Entire media ecosystem, my God, uh, you know, it, it, you know uh, the the fate of elite colleges is just endlessly fascinating to certain people in the uh, upper middle class, professional striving class, I guess, because my God, how many fucking articles about Harvard are we going to have to read for the next, uh, you know, the several months? But you don't have to get back in there, Congress, and keep talking about it and keep hitting the pinata. Um, uh, if, if I was motivated by waking up and wishing ill on Harvard and I honestly, I, I would, if I had more, uh, uh, motivation and energy, but I just don't care. And I, I'm, I'm trying really hard to not care about what happens on college campuses. Cause they seem like ridiculous places to me, honestly. But if that was my motivation, I would let them do exactly what they're doing. You got a Which couple is, years, Matt, until your daughter is in the situation where she's going to be going to one of these campuses, right? I mean, uh, you're assuming she's graduated from high school, so that's uh, already like a a, a big step. Uh, so, can, so you but, don't think uh, the rot the rot has hit the local community colleges that she'll be going to? <laughs> uh, it's it's you know Long Beach State is where they had the uh, the paragliders, right? Um, so uh, it's uh, it's oh, yeah. not even just a UC thing anymore; it's a Cal State thing. But no, I'm watching Harvard twist in the wind over this. And it will defend itself. It'll draw the wagons and circle the wagons and, and defend against the evil corporates who are mm-hmm. or, or conservatives who are seizing and pouncing and all that kind of crap. <laughs> uh, and then they're going to have problems with the alumni and then it's going to be anti-Semitism and all this. It's going to, Harvard is going to absolutely disgrace itself in the coming months. Um, you don't need Congress to help. Well, the, um, the, they'll do it just all keep, by themselves. The one thing that we should always remember about Harvard to really keep up the hate, the Harvard hate here, (laughs) is that, you know, the endowment is how many hundreds of billions of dollars. Uh, They did take COVID uh, uh, funds, uh, which is amazing. Mm. Uh, They do get insane amounts of taxpayer money, despite the fact that they have one of the largest endowments. It has the largest endowment of university in America. It was hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, 
Uh, it might, no, I'm sorry. No, I think it's billion something, isn't mm-hmm. it? It's billions. It's billions. Yeah. Sorry, that's that's wrong. Um, and I believe they're the largest single landowner in Cambridge, Massachusetts, if not Boston. Um, Cambridge being, you know, what Brooklyn is to Manhattan, uh, Cambridge is to Boston, just across the river. But I think that it might even be Boston too. Uh, they don't deserve our sympathy in any way. I mean, I did see, I mean, there is a lot of this moment where social media and the internet has really just exacerbated a lot of these class divides that help explain the rise in 2016 of Donald Trump. And I think a great example of this is the people in California on the, not 101, what was it? The, what, what highway was it? Where they the blocked? 110. The 110. The harbor. When they blocked the, the road during rush hour to 75 people to protest. Um, I mean, the Israeli war cabinet was paying very close attention. They were like, what's happening on the 110 <laughs> today? I don't know if we should launch this strike. And one of those people was a former Gawker writer who tweeted um, very proudly about being arrested. And the funny thing is, if you look at the videos, there are people beating the shit out of them and like, trying to pull out the run. Who are they? Mexicans, a lot Mexicans. of Mexicans. They gotta uh, go to work. But they're, they gotta go to work yeah. because like they don't they don't get to sit in the fucking they're highway. White, white, white Latinos. Like, people who, That's what they are. <laughs> Obviously. Yeah, well, well, no, these were not these were not these were not uh, George Zimmerman. They can't help it. <laughs> yeah, they were it's they, like draped uh, mania. It's the same sort black. of thing. They don't know what they're doing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> they don't know. They just <laughs> there were black guys, there were white guys, there were working class guys. There was one dude just absolutely beat the, ad. the funniest <laughs> thing about it. It's <laughs> Benetton ad of beating up white fucking PhD students. But it's hilarious because there's one guy like just is just like throwing this kid around and then throws him onto the pavement. There's like 60 of these people in their like, you know, yellow high vis vest, like stop, stop. It's like, you guys just don't know how to fight. Do you do you like, no one can fight. Like this guy is just like throwing them around and everyone's just like trying to reason with him, which is incredible. So um, it's like, no, no, you got to fight back. You, you know, what, one thing, one connection that I failed to make earlier is the Bennett, piece in The Economist also contains some um, disses, some some shots at the 1619 Project. Um, and there, he spills oh, like plenty of tea. Like there are a lot of private conversations and correspondence that he relays here. Um, and he talks about the 1619 Project and the sort of stealth deletion of a particularly audacious phrase Um, when they described the project as aiming to reframe the country's history, understanding 1619 as our quote, this is the, and this whole thing is a quote, but true founding. Um, It's a, it's as, as he describes it here, Bennett describes it as a bold statement. Um, And uh, as folks will probably remember that phrase was stealth deleted from, (laughs) from Mm -hmm. the piece um, digitally, obviously Mm -hmm. it was in print as well. um, And they, they did get found out about it. Um, and it's it's just interesting to see that there was the the a glimpse of the internal internal consternation related to the publication of this piece, which you know did turn out to contain plenty of errors um, and obvious mistakes and kind of ridiculous overstatement, despite the fact that it was put through the paces with respect to fact checks and reviews. Um, it's just a, a really bad piece of journalism. But yeah, the Bennett piece is what worth worth taking some look at. <laughs> Um, 
or faux history, yeah. mind you. Yeah. And yes, the Harvard um, endowment, $50.7 billion in 2023, which is slightly down from $50.9 billion um, in, the, in 2022. Defund Harvard. Don't give them a fucking <laughs> nickel of taxpayer money. Give it to like people who deserve it, not a bunch of rich idiots who sit around like, you know, studying homophobia and transphobia in Swedish puppet theater. <laughs> Nobody cares. Like, so what I'm hearing is, is give it to no, Mexican no, no, don't freeway give it to protest, protest let me clear keep money. Hon- hon- honestly, <laughs> yeah, let me keep my money. But if you've already dispersed the money and you have it sitting there, every one of those Mexican guys try- that, that's trying to go to work, give him his salary for the day and $300 for every, every hippie he punched. Oh my God. Everyone. <laughs> Oh my God! You get a you get a reward we, for punching. We him. need to import them into New York. They they're closing like a bridge a day these days. I New mean, York. it's like I, when they stand in front of the um, subway tracks. That's when I, you know, that's when I will really get angry and then just try to push them onto the third rail. You know, but I just like the the the, the other one is that in, and again to somebody mentioned I think you Camille or Matt mentioned the um, fact that Barry was like weirdly mocked for saying there was a generational divide, which is so transparently true that I can't like that. That shows you how little they had to argue with, but that generational divide was obviously on display last night when staffers, (laughs) a Biden white house staffers, all of whom seemed to be dressed like Mujahideen (laughs) went out in front of the white house to protest what their boss was doing. They were led by the guy from the State Department um, who quit over this. And I'll give him some credit because he actually quit. Um, These kids are masked. There's nothing menacing about that. I don't want to show my face while I'm in front of my employee, the the place where I am employed in the White House, and my employer denouncing the policy of the United States government that they believe is going to be modified by a bunch of 22-year-olds who just got out of college and they just got out of their anti-colonial studies and they believe that it applies in this case. It's absolutely bizarre to see. Look at the photo, which is really crazy because they're literally all wearing masks and keffiyehs wrapped around their face and there's definitely nothing menacing about it. I I mean, I think I speak for certain old people uh, when I say there needs just to be a lot more firing. Uh, going on, I was yeah, uh, firing people for their political opinions, um, Matt Welch. Yep. <laughs> no, for protesting uh, against your boss. No, uh, uh, protesting against your boss. No, for, 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 for like, fucking I'll fire you. Protest the job. I, I I was reading, and this might sound like a stretch, and I think it's not. Um, I was reading with some uh, mounting alarm and just like laugh uh, out loud uh, bemusement. Uh, Oliver Darcy's latest from last night. It's a CNN media critic. Um, cause he preemptively criticized CNN for having a town hall with Vivek Ramaswamy, <laughs> um, uh, which they did last night. I'll just read you a little bit of it. Uh, so he, this comes out last night. CNN will present a town hall on Wednesday evening with Vivek Ramaswamy helping to legitimize the dishonest GOP presidential hopeful who has spewed dangerous lies and injected poison into the national discourse at every chance, I'm, if I'm running CNN, you're yeah. fucking fired. Let's yeah, like, stop talking I mean, it's shit. Just, it's just yeah. so, seriously, it's employer, just so yeah. over the top. Like it just is crazy. But yeah. but I mean, but we should talk about this briefly. I mean, there we are civil libertarians, you know, free speech advocates, 
generally don't don't like that sort of don't like uh, to see the state meddling with people in their opinions. Is it different when you work for the president of the United States in the White House and you are charged with implementing policy on their behalf? If you are engaged sure. in public protest in front of your place of employment, masked or not, um, shrouded in all black or not, um, essentially condemning the policy of the person that you work for, is it different? Is it different Quit. for yeah. for you to be fired for that sort of thing? I, I think you should, honestly, I think that you should be fired in that case. Yeah, I do too. What are you doing? Like the president has the bully pulpit, um, whether we like that or not, it is true. And the president is, is conducting diplomacy, uh, has a, a white hand to do that. And uh, white hands to conduct foreign policy, constitutionally speaking. Um, and so uh, cannot be sitting around and constantly henpecked publicly by his own goddamn employees. Pick a lane. You can work for the White House. Cool. Um, it's not your job to speak for White House staff. It is the White House staff's job to, especially the PR department. You need to have, um, you know, reporting trees here. It's just like I remember having arguments with libertarians of all things uh, about uh, Bo Bergdahl back in the day. Right? He's a guy yeah. who defected to the Taliban, um, and then we engaged in a prisoner swap to get him back. As the Taliban's like, all right, weirdo, yeah. psycho, we'll take you. <laughs> Um, and, um, and, you know, it's part of our military code of conduct that, um, that we, we, we get everyone, even though we, if we don't like them, and uh, because we, we don't like Bo Bergdahl and people were saying, um, uh, that, uh, like it's, I was arguing that he did wrong in defecting to the Taliban. Like if you protest the war machine or whatever, which I have great respect for, what you do is you quit. You don't join the or other you side. don't join in the first place. Or you don't join in the first place, whatever. No. Um, but no. like, you need to have a military that has a chain of command. If you're going to assume having a military, maybe some people don't want one. Okay. Um, but if you're going to have a military, it's got to work like this. You can have w internal whistleblowers that the military, and hopefully you do. And we've had plenty in, in ours. But to have this kind of constant thrum of insubordination. But the whistleblowers is typically for something that's illegal, right? I mean, it's not yeah. something you disagree with. And also, there's a reason that in the military there are charges of insubordination. I mean, it doesn't, you can't, I mean, you have to, uh, unit cohesion is obviously very important. I mean, look, and the same thing is true when you talk about the White House, is that we have 250 years of people being fired from the White House um, for stepping outside of what the president or the, the administration wants policy-wise for disagreeing on certain things. People get fired for this all the time. I mean, imagine if you go out there with a mask on in front of the White House. What if every one of these people every day um, chose for to write a, a opinion piece in a newspaper saying, I am the assistant secretary of blah, blah, blah in this administration, and here's my opinion on everything that the that the current administration has done wrong and why they should listen to me and only me. I think there's a point at which, um, I mean, the point is the first thing that you publish like that is that you, that's not, these are not the, the ways of doing this. These are not the channels. No one is saying that you don't have a right to speech. You have a right to speech. You don't have a right to a job. You don't have a right to a job in the White House. And you can be fired for that because there has to be some sort of cohesion within the White House because if not, you have coup mongers of you know, a bunch of people infiltrating themselves into the White House and then trying to overthrow 
the 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 president's uh, foreign policy, the president's domestic policy, whatever it might be. I mean, you have to have some semblance. I mean, it's, just, it's like a normal job. I mean, you can't go out there denouncing your. I thought this was really weird advice that that that. that after the Me Too article came out, all of these people from Vice started posting stuff on Twitter about the hideousness of of their company. And they thought because it was Me Too, like Me Too and race were the things that gave you a free pass to be insubordinate, to attack your employer publicly and say, well, no, I'm, ta- I'm attacking for the right reasons. No, 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 you just can't attack your employer. The, the, the thing to do is to resign. Um, but people... You know, the same thing was true at Vice when it was, it was revealed they were doing projects with the Saudis. You know, this is like they're doing some with, with you know, uh, what's his name's uh, MBA, MBS's um, media company. And they, you know, talked to the New York Times. But you know, nobody, nobody left because they were getting paid well. So they don't really care. They don't actually, I mean, to have a, a, a moral standard for work um, involves actually taking a moral position, which involves not having any money for a little bit until you get a new job. Um, walking outside with a mask on and then going back and saying everything's fine uh, doesn't do anything at all. Um, and and to be clear, when I was uh, roping uh, Oliver Darcy in, into uh, this particular argument, it's not that uh, someone who works at a media company shouldn't criticize publicly their own employer. There's ways to do that, um, and hopefully, there's a you know a healthy. Uh, fostering of dialogue. National Review is always doing this where people are arguing with one another. Um, uh, we do to a lesser degree at reason, um, but uh, it's a less, a smaller a big tent than uh, conservatism. But it is attacking the very uh, project of journalism itself, which is what uh, Oliver Darcy is doing, and just absolutely throwing insane uh, adjectives and ideas about, yeah. um, you know, validating a preposterous conspiracy theorist and stuff. You, you're not advancing the journalism project by being the traffic cop saying who and who cannot be, uh, legitimated, uh, with an interview, um, on your, on your broadcast network. you like, you have the wrong idea about journalism and you're expressing yeah. it publicly in terms that is like putting blood in the hands of your employer. And at some point, just like knock it off. Get a, get a different line of work. Go work directly yeah. for Media Matters. Take out the yeah. middle in, in Reason, National Review, anything like that, there'll be someone who makes an argument, and this happens all the time, and you want to say that's wrong and have a counter argument. It's never the case that they want that argument, or very rarely the case, I would hope, that they want that argument to not exist within the four walls of Reason Magazine or National Review or whatever it might be. Because that is the argument that Oliver Darcy makes. Is not It's like a public works project. It's not, this is something for the people. And what I, I think that what the people need is to be protected from ideas that they're too stupid to adjudicate on their own. So therefore, let's not do this. I mean, th- I mean this is going to be, of course, what's going to happen again after... The primaries and, and Donald Trump is the nominee for the Republican Party. We're going to have to go through this fucking thing all over again. Yep. That when he has a rally and they cut to it, it's like, you know, you can't, you can't hear him talk because hearing him talk might convince you that he's right. So therefore, we have to protect the people from hearing him, despite the fact that he's one of two candidates that you can vote for. That is wild and that is crazy. And I also have to say that I am completely fine in supportive of um, Elon Musk allowing Alex Jones back be. on to Twitter, um, I think Al- I think Alex Jones. Well, I think he's the most one of the most loathsome 
um, pathological liars. Why are you, I mean, why are you defending that's the thing that people don't notice about. <laughs> I, because I love him so much. <laughs> But the thing about Jones is he is literally a pathological liar and he, and he will say things and he was just did an interview mm-hmm. with Tucker and I watched like a bit of it. And he does this th- thing where he's like talking about Ukraine or something. He does it constantly. It's very Trumpian thing. That's why they like each other. And he's like, you know, that's, I, I'm getting stuff from generals and they're telling me that uh, everyone in Ukraine is actually dead. I'll give you the documents if you want to see them. I got the documents. They're showing me the documents. Like, you don't, ha- you're making this up. You've been doing it for years and no one. It's one of those things you can't be caught out on because you're like, no, no I promised that I would not show this stuff, but just trust me. That kind of stuff is noxious. He's a noxious presence in the debate, but he's a presence in the debate and people like him and debate him. Um, mock him. Um, getting rid of him, by the way, didn't work. Didn't work. Uh, I just want a special shout out to our friends at the Libertarian Party National oh Headquarters. Uh, they uh, they celebrated Alex Jones coming back to Twitter by reacting to a tweet of his. His tweet was a picture of uh, like gay uh, dads happily welcoming kids into their world, like the drawings of them. Um, uh, and uh, he's saying... Uh, the globalist central goal is to turn human society if to a factory farm system directed <laughs> oh, by them. Brave, mm-hmm. brave new Very world. Convincing. This is Alex Jones. Uh, brave yeah. new world was an owner's manual, according to, to Huxley. So, um, and he's in, uh, Alex Jones is retweeting again, like these uh, three little squares of, of gay dads with their embryo. And then the fourth is from um, the, the, whatever it's called, the, with the, the word. So the, the LP the, is, re- you, you is reposting this. So the e- LP is responding to this opportunity that Alex Jones is, has to uh, talk about uh, these issues by making the following declara- declarations. We will not eat the bugs. We will not live in the pods. We will not get the implants. Well, I mean, it depends. (laughs) If you're flat chested, I'm not going to oppose. We will stop 15 minute cities. We will fight. We will win. Tyrants be warned. So the, based the on that tweet, been a you are not going to win. Not going to win. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder. I wonder why libertarianism will never make it into the mainstream. It's because of maybe like we're not going to eat the bugs or live in the pods. It's like yeah, okay, fucking Lyndon Larouche, oh, just man. chill. See, as, as, Lord, we're, as we're talking about this, I, I just old. saw um, a little earlier, and I'm remembering that I have to go watch this later. Tucker Carlson just had on, um, what's his name? Grush, the guy who was testifying uh, in Congress about the UFOs. UFO um, man. And the, the headline on the video is, has the government killed anybody connected to UFO programs? Um, <laughs> just, There's nothing weird about any not, of this. Oh, no. It's <laughs> not <laughs> has, it's how many. Yeah. Man. Yeah. Come on. I'm, I'm really starting to wonder why, why Fox why, let him go. Um, yeah. Fox yeah. got rid of him. I mean, yeah. Because maybe maybe in the green room, he was like, uh, did you hear about the aliens? Yeah. And like, may, I mean, maybe they were shooting down scripts that they were trying, they had, they had to approve because they were about aliens and Seth Rich and it just didn't give you the, and all that stuff. I, Has he gone 9 11? I don't Has know. Has he gone 9 11 truth yet? Oh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Okay, good. No, he's, no, he's he did. Ca- he got did. all the bases um, covered. He's like, uh, you're yeah. not allowed to ask questions 
about why this building fell down. <laughs> okay, so the that. last three. But I just want to point out, you're absolutely <laughs> you're allowed good. to ask questions. That, and I'm absolutely there, allowed there to say that's three, a really three dumb posts question. here, like the most yeah. recent ones. 19 hours ago, has the government killed anybody connected to the UFO programs? 20 hours ago, Alex Jones reveals the real reason totally. why globalist elites wants to op- want open borders. I, I definitely want to tune in for that. And then 21 hours Bugs. ago, who's losing the Ukraine versus Russia war? Question mark. And then this isn't a question, he just knows the United States, period. So I, it's absolutely interesting. Yeah. Um, but that but that reminded oh, me. Oh man, I I, I missed What's this. That? Sorry, uh, December sixth. So this was a week ago, week a week and a few days ago. Uh, Tucker Carlson tweeted: Alex Jones predicted nine eleven in detail and on camera months before it happened. How did he How did he do that? And why did the government decide to destroy God. him after he did? I oh didn't know that Lord. he was a Jewish or Israeli art student. <laughs> yeah, he's uh, definitely a <laughs> dancing Alex Jones. I'm going to dance because I'm very oh, happy about man. this. But I'm, oh, Lord. Right, I got a good yeah, running, well, we by should, the way, we should, just so you know. Um, yeah, we got to yes, wrap this up real quick. The last thing I wanted to do, yesterday I sent you guys a link to an article that suggested that the Russians had lost something like 90% of their military force um, that they had at the beginning of the conflict. Um, and that Ukraine was uh, obviously just kind of decimating their military. Um, there were reports floating around and published in a couple of places. I saw attribution to a source who had seen some sort of intelligence document. Um, but as I said to you guys at the time, um, the numbers seemed kind of preposterously high. And I was not sure if it was credible. And I was curious about your perspectives on it. And you had some opinions. Um, the, the quote that I sent over was, uh, of the mm. 360,000 troops that entered r- Ukraine, including contractors and conscript personnel, Russia has lost 315,000 on the battlefield, according to this assessment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It seems, seems high. high. Yeah, it seems high. I mean, the, the uh, British, uh, I think it's an MI6 uh, uh, estimate I think was over two hundred thousand. Mm-hmm. Either way, it's insanely high. Um, it's 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 definitely very high. Um, the people doing these math when they're like, how you know how like I think it was um, you know the always conspiratorial um, and always ludicrous Michael Tracy saying that you know well it's incredible they didn't just you know cut through them like a hot knife through butter. It's like well they do replace them. <laughs> And so the idea is not that they just disappeared and now they're fighting with 40,000 people. I mean, I think 600,000 people, don't quote me on this, I'm just doing this from memory, um, are, uh, were, were um, called up and conscripted into the army. Um, that's happening, this forced conscription across uh, Russia, which is happening for a reason. If they had an agile professional fighting force that could hold its own and you know no problems, they wouldn't have gone out to you know potentially annoy the people of Russia who have been very successfully pacified by the Putin regime over time with jail sentences and, you know, a one-party media and one-party political state. Um, they're, you know, rounding people up to, to they don't want mm-hmm. to do that, I wouldn't imagine, um, but they are. It also doesn't mean that the Ukrainians haven't lost a ton of people too. But I saw someone um, who was very critical of this, like mockingly so, and said, you know, it appears from you know, uh, death notices and blah, 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 you know, which the Russians obviously aren't being completely forthcoming about either in local newspapers, that that number is closer to 50,000. <laughs> um, and thinking of, of this, of like, you had already cleaved off 
um, Crimea, you know, and then those areas in Donetsk and Luhansk and 2014. And you tried to take Kiev and lost spectacularly. And you lost 50,000 people. Let's say, let's split in half and say 150,000 people. For what? So, because they might have joined NATO and we had to do this. And I've pointed this out before, but the death toll in the Afghan, Afghan war after the Soviets invaded Afghanistan in 1979 that precipitated the fall of the Soviet Union and precipitated mothers protesting to Gorbachev when Gorbachev got into office around 85 and 86, they start, there's a lot of pushback in this. They lost 14,000 people in the war against the Mujahideen, 14,000. And that was seven, eight years, started in 79. I guess the, I the final pullout was what, 86, 87, something like that. Maybe even 88, but that is 14,000 people. If this is a quarter of what is suggested by American intelligence, it's already vastly more violent um, than um, what happened in Afghanistan over a much longer period of time. So we don't know exact numbers because dictatorships don't tell you exact numbers. But, um, you know, that's the thing about America. Like, when no one has ever said, no, more than 3,500, 3,600 people died in Iraq. Um, that was, you know, the biggest foreign policy failure in, you know, American memory. And it's, what, 4,000 people, something around there. Um, I'm, I'm, again, this is from memory, and, and it's early in the morning, so I don't know. This is, say, 4,000 in Iraq. I mean, there's what is the reaction in Russia to 50,000, 100,000? Yeah, I mean, that's an, it's enormous. It's, it, either way, it's a catastrophe, and, a catastrophe. And I mean, I, for, for I don't know uh, what the strategic um, thinking is for the United States, but from a foreign policy standpoint, if you're supporting a force that's defending itself against some foreign government incurring in, uh, foreign government's incursion into your territory, you the United States might be able to support you, and they may not be able to help you completely expel them. But one has to imagine mm -hmm. that bloodying their nose in such a severe way um, is probably regarded as a strategic success. If the goal is to send a signal that you can't yeah. do this sort of thing and get away with it, would they would they have hoped for much more? One can presume as much. Um, but I mean, this is hardly a complete failure. It seems to me. War is failure. Well, this is War true. Is a, yes. is a failure of, uh, and it's and it's horrifying, and and it's it's hard for me, and I fucking hate Putin, and uh, was happy that the independents declared him the number one enemy of freedom <laughs> in twenty fourteen presciently, um, uh, but uh, um, you know, I don't, I'm not happy to see Russians die. I think it's horrible. Um, uh, the way that which I'm worried about the. A lot of this, the backdrop of this is that Zelensky's in Washington trying to shake loose some more money and it's become part of American immigration politics because Republicans are super clever. And uh, and so um, you hear a lot of silly things being said. I think the 300,000 is likely a silly number. Um, I'm more worried about the idiot national security experts being trotted out on CNN because they hired about 75 of them in the wake of uh, the Russiagate. Um, saying that, well, you know, if we don't stop them now, they're going to invade Poland next, and that's going to put American, you know, uh, uh, soldiers at risk. They're not going to invade Poland next. The moment that they invade Poland, Russia will cease to fucking exist, um, and we don't even have to help them. Poland will do. <laughs> will do that. Uh, they are not going to be taking that lying down. What the worry is that um, Russia's specific worry is that they'll go into Moldova. Uh, Moldova is small. They have a history of violence and uh, and 
uh, trying to use Russian ethnic minorities, and there's a, a whole Transnistria region. It's Moldova, it's Georgia, it's places like that that are in there near abroad that are part of their own kind of restoration of imperial, uh, lost imperial glory ambitions. Um, that is what is at stake, plus the overall, um, and this no one seems to care about this too much anymore, but it's worth uh, caring about, is the idea of national sovereignty and the promise of security guarantees to people in re- in retain in uh, exchange for them giving up their nuclear arsenal. Um, those things kind of matter. And if you just sort of sit idly by and watch a larger, more armed and only nuclear armed country swallow up chunks of its neighbor, then the international system of of respecting sovereignty of of countries is degraded. Um, so those things, like I think, are are worthy um, of of paying attention to uh, more than the really kind of dumb way I think that the JD Vances and Tucker Carlson and and other people just make America the main player of of the story always yeah. and forever. Um, final thing uh, before we run. Um, I said 44,000 something. Um, it is 4,400 in Iraq, but that includes uh, non-hostile deaths. Um, 3,400 Americans died um, between 2003 and 2010 in uh, Iraqi Operation Freedom or Operation Iraqi Freedom. 3,400, every single one of those, of course, being a tragedy and unnecessary um, in the end. Uh, that seems to be a day's worth of deaths in in uh, Russia, even if very conservative estimates uh, are true. I mean, imagine I can imagine that that, that they, Russian soldiers reached that count in one week, um, in a particularly hostile week, and that was one of the biggest disruptions of American politics of many generations. And it was three thousand four hundred. Yeah. So I just all nice right. Point. Well, we got to wrap this one up, but we will be back right. soon. So we got to wrap it. Bye. All right. Bye. Bye. We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan horse.